We've been doing a teaching series in the book of Isaiah, um, and I'm continuing that for us. We've been looking at the question, who is God? And for a number of weeks now, we've seen different things about the character of God, namely that he's a God of peace, he's a God who vindicates, he's a God who conquers death. Last week, he's the God with motherly compassion. And today I'm talking about um, a very famous chapter in the Bible and talking about the theme that God is the suffering servant from Isaiah 53. And this is really the beating heart of the Christian faith. This chapter, um, even if you're not a a believer or regular at church, um, you'll probably recognize some of the phrases and ideas in this chapter from from various festivals and things that you might hear around or see around. And actually, if you're not a believer, or this is one of your first times in church, this is a really good Sunday to come on. Because what I'm talking about today is what separates Christianity from all the other world faiths. And it's the thing, the the pivotal point upon which the whole belief system kind of pivots. The cross of Jesus Christ and the fact that God died in our place. So it's a great Sunday to come on. This is essentially the secret ingredient of what makes Christianity work. And we're giving it to you for free today. So that's very good. Um, Okay, so Isaiah is a prophet uh, who lived several hundred years before Jesus. So we're talking BC history, ancient history in the Middle East. And uh, he spoke to God's people, which was the ethnic people of Israel at the time. Uh, The story of the Bible is essentially that God took one family... Um, He spoke to a man called Abraham and said, through you and your family, I'm going to bless the whole world. So through this family, one day Jesus came. That was God's big idea. He was going to bless the world through this family. And the story of the Old Testament really is how this family, um, one of Abraham's children was called Jacob, who got renamed Israel, so we call them the people of Israel. Uh, But it's the story of how the people of Israel um, live out their calling from God to be uh, the light of the world, to be the promise carriers for the whole world. Um, And the the trouble is that the people of Israel, they were were meant to be um, like doctors with a cure for the sin disease uh, that's plagued humanity. But instead of being doctors with the cure, they became those who were infected by the disease themselves. And so there was a lot of problems, um, them toing and froing and their walk with God and God getting disappointed and angry at them. In the book of Isaiah, um, because he's a prophet, he has a lot of woeful things to say and a lot of criticism to bring to the people. And, um, and up until the chapter that we're looking at today... Um, that's some of the things that we've been looking at, the, the terrible present of the people of Israel and the glorious hope that God's going to bring through Jesus. And in chapters 40 to 48 of the book of Isaiah, the theme of a servant begins to emerge. God's people are living in exile in a country that's not their own under the tyrannical rule of some foreign oppressors. They're enslaved physically. And God says, I'm going to raise up a servant who's going to rescue you physically from slavery. That servant, he says, is uh, King Cyrus of of Persia. And he's physically going to be used by God to rescue you from physical slavery, he says. And then in the chapters that we're moving on to today, chapters 49 to 55, God describes the arrival and coming of another type of servant, a servant who's going to rescue them from a slavery much more significant than physical slavery, the slavery to sin and death, the slavery that not just the people of Israel are in, but all of us and all people who've ever lived are enslaved to sin and death. And so God reveals the arrival of another servant, not, the, not King Cyrus this time, but a suffering servant, someone who, who suffers on behalf of the people and becomes king over the people. And that's a servant that we now look back to and say, well, that's Jesus. And in fact, the, the New Testament goes to great lengths to show us, yes, that's Jesus. 
over eight times the, the, the Bible writers in the New Testament recite or, or, or cite Isaiah 53 as being about Jesus. And so we're going to read the whole chapter together of Isaiah 53. Um, it's fairly lengthy, but uh, I'll read it through once and then we're going to, basically this morning, we're just going to walk through it a verse at a time and kind of come to grips with what it says. It's a magnificent chapter and uh, just as a, as a warning really, um, it's likely to offend you today. Um, if it doesn't offend you, it might amaze you. And if it doesn't do either, I haven't done a very good job today. So let's go. Isaiah 52, we'll start there in verse 13 and read all of 53. If you haven't got a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. Okay, God says this. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human recognition and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has been told them they see and that which they've not heard they understand. Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for sin. He shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So Jesus, uh, when he arrived on the earth in uh, 4 BC, he was born and celebrated at Christmas and, and grew up. He grew up under the shadow of this chapter all the while reading the scriptures, learning his destiny, learning that he, it was indeed his destiny, if you like, vocation, to be the suffering servant that Isaiah writes about. He lived in that shadow. 
He lived in the shadow of Isaiah 53, but more than that, he lived in the shadow of the cross, knowing that it was the, the cross that was eventually to be the thing that was going to be the path he was going to have to walk. Uh, in fact, uh, Holman Hunt in the 19th century uh, painted this fictitious but theologically accurate painting of Jesus as a young man working in the carpentry shop. And um, I'm not quite sure what he's doing. Maybe he's just posing like Jesus. But you can see the, the, the shadow that's cast on the wall against the, uh, the wood thing there, making the point that the painting's called The Shadow of Death. The, the point being that Jesus grew up under the shadow of the cross, knowing that this was uh, his destiny. And the cross, the cross appears everywhere, um, from first aid logos to um, the bottom of our letters, in windows, in woodwork, in jewelry, in architecture. The cross is central to, to Western civilization, even as a, as a culture that we are, post-Christian and increasingly godless. Still the cross as a symbol of love and of sacrifice is everywhere. And actually... Making sense of the, if we make sense of the cross, we begin to understand Western civilization because that's where we've come from. That's, without it, there would be no West, if you like. There would be no democracy, arguably, without the cross. There'd be no um, inherent value in man without the cross. The cross is central to everything. In fact, you know, the, the joke's often made that uh, in, in children's work in churches, the answer is always Jesus. It doesn't matter what the question is, the answer is Jesus. And it's never more true than when we look at the cross. Whatever our plight or difficulty the answer is always Jesus the cross the cross tells us that there's no one who's too sinful too immoral that they can't be forgiven or rescued the cross tells us that there's no one who's too messed up or too broken that they can't find restoration it's in the cross of Jesus that we find recovery forgiveness for sin redemption restoration with God all of those wonderful themes that we throw around so easily and as Christians, the cross has become the pivotal point of our lives as well. Uh, a church leader called Tertullian, writing in 200 AD, he said this, At every forward step and movement, at every going in and out, when we put on our clothes and shoes, when we bathe, when we sit down, when we light the lamps on couch, on seat, in all the ordinary actions of daily life, we trace upon the forehead the sign of the cross. For Christians, since the year dot, the cross has been the central symbol by which we identify ourselves. When I was, um, when I was 16, I, I first encountered the truth of the cross. And it made such an indelible mark on me that uh, it's always been a source of comfort and strengthening ever since. In fact, um, when I was about 18, I worked in a pub and, uh, and after one night cycling home, um, there's a church that I always passed and they always had a, a wooden cross on their lawn. And one night I just, I just parked my bike and went and sat for half an hour or so on the grass at the foot of this cross. And just remembering that moment is so significant for me at the time that I basically said, Lord, I'm just laying down everything at this cross. I want to I wanna get my orientation for life from the cross, from the most significant event in human history. Uh, as individuals, we have pivotal points in our lives, whether it's um, passing our driving test or finishing our exams, getting our first job, having a baby. Those are moments where our life shifts in a different direction. Well, the cross is the moment when human history shifted entirely and has never been the same since. There have been some significant moments in human history. The invention of penicillin, the internet, the printing press, but the cross towers above them all. As I showed the video a couple of weeks ago about how the cross outlives and outlasts all the ideas of man. 
It's extremely significant for us. So here's what we're going to do uh, in the, the time that we've got, 25 minutes or so. We're just going to walk through the chapter together and glean what we can from Isaiah 53. So here we go. Verse 1, who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now this phrase, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed, in Bible language, that, that's reminiscent of what God did in the Exodus story. And the Exodus story is when God rescued his people who were enslaved in Egypt by bringing them out through the Red Sea. Uh, Moses led the Israelites across dry land of the sea and then the waters crashed and killed the Egyptians that were pursuing them. If you don't know the story, there's a film coming out soon by Ridley Scott. I don't know how accurate it will be, but there we go. It's the year of the biblical epics. And in that moment in the Bible, uh, the, writer, the writers celebrating God's rescue, they use the phrase, they said, with an outstretched arm, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, God has rescued us. So when you hear that phrase, the arm of the Lord, it conjures up this theme of rescue, rescue from slavery. And like in action films, when a real tough guy kind of gets ready for a fight, rolls up his sleeves to reveal the strength of his arm. And Isaiah's saying, so, so that's what God's going to do, but who can believe it when it comes? Who's believed it? In other words, Isaiah's saying, yeah, God's mighty, powerful, outstretched arm is coming, but you won't believe it when it does. It won't look like what you expect it to look like. You'll walk past him in the street. There's nothing about this rescuer that's desirable in himself. He'll, he'll never win a modeling contract or he won't be a celebrity that people will um, kind of think highly of and uh, put posters up. There's nothing about him you should desire. There's no majesty, no kingly robes he'll be wearing. He's not an army commander. He's not an angel who'll wipe out God's enemies. He'll be unbelievable. Andrew Wilson tells a story of uh, when he was growing up, um, a friend of his lived above the train station in Eastbourne. And one day they were mucking around and his friend had a BB gun and uh, was pointing the gun at Andrew's face and said, it's empty, look, there's nothing in it, there's empty, look at it, I dare you to look at the gun, it's empty. And he pulled the trigger to show him it's empty, but it wasn't empty. And uh, a BB flew out and hit Andrew in the face and he yelled out in, in true Wilson melodramatic fashion, oh, you shot me in the face, you shot me in the face. Which would have been fine, apart from the fact that they lived above the train station in Eastbourne, which is a busy area, and someone was walking past and saw this person with a pistol, uh, what looked like a pistol, and heard someone else shouting, you've shot me in the face! And so they phoned the police. Q two o'clock in the morning, uh, the person who lived in this flat was woken up with lots of bang, 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 bang on the door. Open up, it's the police! Open up, it's the police! They opened the door and these, these police officers in full riot gear burst into the flat saying, there's a gun in the property, there's a gun in the property. And the guy that lived there was like, oh, what a gun? Oh, you mean this? And <laughs> picked up the BB gun. On the ground, on the ground. They pinned him to the ground and realized it was a BB gun. The, the officers turned up in full riot gear expecting a an armed siege, and what they got was a teenager with a BB gun. And you can well imagine them around their coffee or donuts the next day talking about, oh, you'll never guess what we saw. You never guess. We turned up expecting this and we got that. And it wasn't what they were expecting. And Isaiah says, the servant of the Lord is going to be like that. It's not what you're expecting. But it's not amusing, it's hideous. It says in the verses we read, so marred beyond human recognition and his form beyond that of children of mankind. And in verse 3, on the next slide, it says, he's one from whom men hide their faces. One from whom men hide their faces. When they were finished with Jesus, the suffering servant, he would have looked more like a monster than a man. You would have had a hard time looking at him going, is that a person underneath all that blood and guts? Jesus 
his appearance would have been so gruesome that mothers would have had to shield their children's eyes from looking at him. Uh, Jesus, when he was, he was uh, betrayed by one of his closest. He was handed over to the Romans, falsely tried and sentenced to execution by crucifixion. And in the New Testament, it says that they handed him over to the Romans who scourged him. And uh, we read that and go, yeah, it's like a form of whipping, right? Being scourged is a form of whipping, except in, in what the Romans would do is they had a whip uh, with several kind of leather tassels on it. Each of the, the tassels had at the end of it either a, a piece of stone or a piece of flint or, or, or metal. And it was called the cat and nine tails. And what they would do is they would whip the person's back and the stone would act to kind of tenderize the, the flesh like a butcher's, um, butcher would. And then the hook on the end of the tassels would rip into the person's flesh. So they would whip them, tenderize the flesh, and pull the flesh out with the hooks at the same time. And, and that was scourging. And they did that to Jesus 39 times. Um, by the time they were finished with him, you would have been able to see muscle and bone. It was horrendous. And it also says in the New Testament that they, they made a, a crown out of thorns. They jammed it onto his head, and then the soldiers blindfolded him. They took a big stick, and they, they hit the crown into his head. And, and they said to him, oh, you're a prophet. If you're a prophet, which one of us hit you? And whack, they would hit him again and hit him again. Which one of us hit you? You're a prophet. And then Jesus was forced to carry his, cru- his cross, the mode of his execution, uh, the long road out of Jerusalem, up a hill to the place of his execution and his murder, his death. He did that butchered by these people. To look at him, you'd have said, that is hideous. I can't look at that. If, you, if ever you've seen The Passion of the Christ, you'll know it's a good, with good reason it's given an 18 certificate film. Um, one, one writer from the ancient world, a Jewish historian, he said that crucifixion was the most wretched of deaths. And Cicero, a Roman citizen, said you shouldn't even, if you're a Roman, you shouldn't even take the word crucifixion on your, on your lips. It's so barbaric. It's so horrible. It was so horrendous is crucifixion and death by crucifixion that a word was created to describe the pain of it, excruciating, ex crux, crush, from the cross, the cry of the cross. And people who were crucified sometimes would take days to die. Uh, the most blood-curdling of sounds could be heard uh, as they died in, in pain and agony. And Jesus would have been crucified outside the city in a very public place, stripped naked, humiliated for all to see, rather like um, someone being um, executed outside of a, a public shopping mall, a public place where everyone would see them. And in the ancient world, sometimes the Romans would crucify someone at eye level as well, so that you'd be able to look them straight into the eye and spit at them and mock them. That's what they did to Jesus. In verse 2 that we read, it said that um, like a, a root out of dry ground, or we might say um, like something out of its depth that doesn't belong there. He was despised and esteemed not. In other words, when the servant comes, Isaiah says, you won't like him. You won't value him. He was hated and disliked. People spat on him. They laughed at him. They abused him. Cheerful start today. So those are the first few verses. The theme of the unbelievable servant comes through. And then in the next few verses, it says this. Surely Oh, sorry, in verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. Not only was he a, an unbelievable servant, he's a substitutionary servant as well. Jesus experienced every form of human suffering and pain. He was a man, the Bible says, acquainted with grief, 
I mean, grief wasn't a friend, it was an acquaintance. He knew acquaintance, he knew grief. Oh yeah, I'm familiar with grief. It's not uncommon, it's not unusual to me, he would have said. Which is astonishing in itself, because if you've ever felt uh, grief, if you've ever felt abandoned or rejected, uh, if you've ever been abused or let down, if you've ever battled sickness, uh, lived with long-term heartache, felt forgotten by God, or or perhaps just felt like you were losing it. The Bible says that Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He's familiar with that, which is outrageous and incredible at the same time. And no other belief system or worldview offers anything anywhere close to that. The image of Muhammad from Islam is of a, a victorious military leader riding into battle with his sword brandished to kill the infidels. The image of Buddha is of someone closing their eyes and meditating to escape the pain of the world. The image of the, the, the swinging hippies and hedonists of the 60s and 70s is of people who pop pills to escape reality and just have fun, don't worry about pain, just enjoy life. Or the, the modern secularist or atheist who essentially says, just put your fingers in your ears, ignore pain, enjoy the here and now, don't think about long term. Stephen Fry recently put together a video about why we should all be humanists. And he said in the video, he said, there is no God, but that's okay because you can enjoy life, which is fine as long as you, you live in the West, which is fine as long as you live among the top, I don't know, 2% people on the planet who've got money, who've got good health, who've got hope. But for the rest of us, for the rest of the world who are familiar with grief and pain, how do you do that? The Bible says that Jesus was acquainted with grief and yet we esteemed him not. We considered that he was smitten by God and afflicted. We didn't give him the credit for any of it. Instead, we thought he was cursed. He was spat on and laughed at. And then verse 5, But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement or punishment that brought us peace. And with his stripes we're healed. Now more than anywhere else in the Bible, we see very clearly here that Jesus Jesus' death was substitutionary. The theologians call this penal substitution. Penal is in penalty. Jesus paid a penalty for us, wounded, crushed, chastised, stripes as penalty. And he did it for us, for our transgression, our iniquity, to bring us peace so that we could be healed. Jesus was punished in our place. He became our substitute. Verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All of us are sheep who've gone astray. It's not just that we, we make different life choices to the ones that God would want for us. It's that actually, no, we've abandoned the shepherd and decided to do our own thing, to go our own way. We're rebels. None of us have lived up to the thing that God created us for. Whether we live a good life or not, it doesn't matter. We're sheep who've gone astray from the shepherd. We're meant to know him, to trust him, to follow him. Instead, we've done our own thing. We've said, thanks for the advice, God. I can take it from here. I know what's right. I know you disagree with this, but the society I live in thinks it's fine. Or the culture I live in thinks it's okay. Or it feels good to me. So thanks, but no thanks. We've gone astray. I was talking to a, a friend just a couple of days ago who was, who, was, who was point blank said to me, so do you think I'm going to hell? That's what he asked me. 
And we had a conversation about it. And I said, well, it depends, Sean. <laughs> Do you trust in Jesus? I said, you don't get to heaven, if you like, or you don't get to know God by trying hard and being good. He said, so you say, you're saying I'm going to hell, he said. He was challenging me, saying, do you realize how abhorrent your God is who would create a hell? He said, I live a good life. I've raised a family. I'm a fireman. Chances are I've saved several lives, he said. And I said, you're right. You're a good person, Sean. You're a good person. But you misunderstand. The standard for goodness is not, even, is not here. It's not even the ceiling. The standard for goodness is the sky. All of us were designed to know God, to live in relationship with him. And all of us have wandered from that and said, I'll, I'll do it my own way. I'll trust myself. That's the problem. We've wandered. And for our wandering and rebellion, we deserve punishment. And so to explain or visualize, I suppose, what this would look like, um, I'm going to invite um, John. Come here. So, so John is a, is a dirty, wretched sinner. Uh, his wife texted me before the meeting some of the things that he's done wrong just this week. So I'll read them out and you can decide just how wretched you think John is and if you think he's deserving to die. She, she didn't really. Okay, I'll tell you what, let's have this. John, this is your, um, this is your bucket. Okay, this is, this is all the filth and rubbish for your life, a lifetime of sin, a lifetime of abandoning God, of wandering away from the shepherd. That's what you've accrued. You deserve this. To have this poured on your head. Should we do that? Should we, should we offer John the fruit of his labor? Shall I read the text out to you from his wife? Well, in the Bible, yes. Actually, we, all of us deserve what we've done. But Isaiah 53 says that there is a servant, Martin, who has come in our place for our sin and takes a, you come and stand here there we go John you can help me with this and takes on himself what we deserve all of the wrath of God and anger of God for our sin all of our actually John I tell you what let's just leave this here there we go that's perfect thank you this is nice and visual all of the wrath of God and anger of God at our sin I think we're starting to feel sorry for him I should take that off has been poured on Jesus for us in our place. Okay, thanks, Martin. I appreciate that. <laughs> you can sit back down. No, yeah, you can clear it up afterwards. See, we deserve that punishment, but it's been poured on Jesus. And I know that's lighthearted, but hopefully in some ways it's a visual aid to help us. That's what penal substitution is. See, if I was to leave here today and, and dent your car... Um, someone would need to fix that, right? Either I fix it or you fix it, but it needs to be fixed. There's a, a penalty that needs to be paid. Uh, I, read, I read this last week about someone who, um, who tragically discovered that his, his daughter was being abused by her uncle, his brother. And when he learned this news, the phrase that he used in response was, I want blood. I want blood. So angry was he at what had taken place. And many of us say, understandably. You see, in some respects, that's exactly what God says. In the Bible, he says there needs to be blood. Because blood speaks of the seriousness of something, doesn't it? It's, it's getting justice for something incredibly serious. 
And that's why Jesus was butchered in the way that he was. I mean, because some people have said, okay, look, if God needed to die for the sin of the world, why didn't he just come now where we can kill people in a humane way? Why don't he just go to dignitas? Because it looks all humane and nice. Why doesn't he do that? Because God wanted us to grasp just how brutal and offensive our sin and rebellion is. And so he needed a visual object lesson, if you like, like this, but the first century equivalent of blood and death because a payment needs to be made. So he's the substitutionary servant. But also we go on to read and it says this, uh, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off for the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. This is dark. This is gloomy. This is the lowest point in human history. The Son of God dying in our place, on our behalf. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. Accusations were leveled against Jesus for all kinds of things, falsely accused of saying and doing all kinds of things. And what did he do in response? Nothing. He, he didn't argue back. That's incredibly hard to do, isn't it? Even in just the small things of life, someone accuses you of doing something you didn't do. I didn't do that. It wasn't me. Jesus opened not his mouth. He took it. Elsewhere, it says that he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He was saying, okay, I'm not going to fight back. I'll trust God. I'll trust God. And we looked a few weeks ago about the God of vindication. that Often silence is needed. He was before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. And Pilate said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, are those your words? You know, you've said so. Pilate said, don't you realize I can set you free? And Jesus said, you'd have no power over me except for the one who gave it to you. God is really in control. But this is gloomy. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered, few understood what was really happening here. The crowd were just filled with bloodlust at Jesus' trial. Yeah, crucify him. We want to kill him. Take him down. For the Romans, it was, it was nothing. It was, well, it's another criminal then. Okay, we'll kill another would-be Messiah, another strange Jewish prophet. We'll kill another one. The Romans were, were more than used to killing people by crucifixion. Um, during the, the uprising led by the slave Spartacus that they made a film about, that no one's ever seen the film, but they do say, I am Spartacus. During that, that uprising, after they caught the slaves and quelled the rebellion, the Romans crucified 6,000 people in one day across the Appian Way, a journey from the port, a port town to Rome, just crucifying 6,000 people. Another one, crucified. Ten, ten feet, crucified. They just kept, they were used to it. Jesus died a criminal's death, like all the others before him. Thousands of people had died by crucifixion. Jesus was just another one. And the Bible says he was crucified in between two, two thieves, two revolutionaries. There he is, the Son of God, dying for us. In verse 9, it says that there was no deceit in his mouth. He'd done no wrong. There was no violence in him. You're supposed to read this and look at Jesus' trial and go, that's unfair. That's not, that's not right. There's no justice there. 
He was tarred with the same brush as a common criminal. Stripped of his dignity. Humiliated. For what? He'd never done anything wrong. I know, when I, when I first saw the, the play, Jesus Christ Superstar, as a teenager, um, kind of exploring Christianity, I saw this and thought, this is so unfair. The injustice of it. And at the time, I, I cried. Tears of sympathy for Jesus. Uh, and sometimes we can do that. We look at Jesus brutalized, butchered for us, and we can feel sad for him. But actually, Jesus, when he was carrying his, his cross to the place of execution, he walked past some women who were crying. And he said to them, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves, for what this means for you, in effect. If we're ever tempted to feel sympathy and sorry for Jesus, he would say, don't. Feel it for yourselves. This is what your sin has done. This is what human rebellion has done. Feel the weight of that. Oh, the injustice of it and the glory of the suffering servant. The last two verses. Yet it was the pleasure of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. How could God have allowed this to happen? Why didn't God stop it? For what purpose was it all going to be worthwhile? Why didn't he defend himself? Surely there's nothing that can justify the brutality of what Jesus experienced. And here, verse 10. Yet it was the pleasure or will of the Lord to crush him. God chose this. We didn't twist his arm to make him do this. He chose it. God, the Father, Son, Spirit, the triune creator God who existed since eternity past, who spoke the universe into existence, that God who sustains all things by the word of his mouth, the Bible says, that God chose together to die in our place, to enter into human history and to take this upon himself, to be the suffering servant in our place. He chose that for you. He chose that for me, for my wickedness and sin, for yours. Sometimes we think, oh, poor, poor Jesus on the cross, the son being killed by the father, that's so unfair. In fact, there's an illustration that often as Christians we use, and I've used this before. It's not a very good one, so I'm hoping after today we won't use it again. But I've used this before. I, I heard it at a conference once, came home when I was leading the youth work, and told it to the youth group thinking, this is emotive and emotional, this will get a response. And so I told them, oh, once there was a, a bus driver, and he had a, a busload of children in his bus, and he, he was driving along the roads, coming to a, a ravine that was crossed by a, a rickety old bridge. But as he got close, he realized that the bridge was missing. But he was too close, he couldn't slam on the brakes. Instead, he had to divert the bus onto another path. The trouble is, on that path was a, was a child playing in the street. And the bus driver had to decide, shall I save the many and kill the one, or kill the one and... Or save the one and kill the many. And he, instead he chose to, to kill the, the poor child in the street and save the people on the bus. And then we learn that the, the child in the street was in fact the bus driver's son and that he killed the son to save the many. And I heard the illustration and thought, wow, that's so powerful. God did that for me. And so I told the youth group that, thinking their first response would be, wow, God's amazing. But their first response was, poor child, <laughs> poor little boy. Why would the dad do that? And sometimes we can look at the cross and we think, oh, poor Jesus, the Father's killing him. 
but that's not the case. God, the Father, Son, and Spirit were in agreement. We'll do this together, won't we? The Father agreed to punish His Son. The Son agreed to be separated from the Father. The Spirit agreed to allow this grief and break in the relationship to take place. And some people ask, well, why, why couldn't God just forgive us? Why, why have to go through this barbaric cross? But this is what forgiveness is. Isn't it? When, when you forgive, what you do is you take on the other person's sin. You absorb it and it hurts. God absorbed in himself all of the wrong that's ever been done him. Instead of pouring his anger out on people who deserved it, he took it in himself. That's what forgiveness is. Verse 12 says that, Therefore I will divide the portion of the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. The battle spoils that Jesus' death won. It's the image there, dividing the battle spoils. You're the spoil. You, he died for you to rescue you from slavery to sin. Now, we'll never be perfect. We're always going to wrestle and struggle with sin of various kinds, in various shapes and forms across our lives, but we're not enslaved to it now. If you're in Christ, you're free from the slavery to sin. The cross is used to bring many people back to God. And such is the beating heart of the Christian message. Sometimes we're tempted to think, where is God when life hurts? When I'm having to go through uh, months or years of heartache and pain, when I'm acquainted with grief more than I'd like to be, where is God? I've prayed and there's nothing happened. Sometimes we can feel like we know the sun's there, but sometimes the clouds hide it so much we question if it's even there at all or if the summer will ever come again. Where is God? The, the cross answers that question by saying, He's in your pain. He's identifying you in your doubts and in your suffering. He's there. And he, again, he's using it to bring you to himself, to transform you, to liberate you. Some people object when they see the cross again because they say, it just, I mean, you're telling me if I believe in Jesus, that's enough. That just sounds too easy, doesn't it? I believe in Jesus and I'm forgiven that sounds too easy. Why is Christianity such an easy doddle of a religion? Why haven't I got to go visit some holy site or go on some kind of pilgrimage? What have I got to do? Haven't I got to reform my life? This seems too easy. And the answer is, it is easy for you. It wasn't for him. That's the point. Or some people would say, and I hear this again a lot, I'm not worthy of the cross. I'm not worthy of it. I feel, I feel like this is really nice, but I don't deserve this. And if you feel like that, the truth is you're closer to understanding the cross and Christianity more than you realize because you're not worthy. That's the point. You deserve this. You deserve death. You deserve punishment. But you get given life and forgiveness. See, some things are loved and praised because they're worthy. Right? Like a sports car or some impressive piece of technology. People praise it because, wow, it's impressive. That isn't you and I before God. Other things are worthy because they are loved. So Riley, my son, uh, is, is four in a couple of weeks' time, but he has this teddy that he got for free at a garden center uh, last Christmas. 
and he carries it everywhere with him. It is tatty and smelly. We have to wash it often when he's not looking. And frankly, we're embarrassed that he carries such a girly teddy around with him, but that's besides the point. Uh, but we have learned as parents that this teddy has been elevated to a position of status in our home. Not because it's worthy. It's tatty. It's horrible. But because it's loved. It's given worth. Riley loves this thing and takes it everywhere with him. And because of that, it's, I have to treat it with respect and care if I want to please my son at least. See, some things are loved because they're worthy and deserve it. Other things are worthy because they're loved. You, made in the image and likeness of God, rebels though we all are, are loved and therefore you are worthy therefore you can look God in the eye therefore you can receive forgiveness from God for all sin future past and present for sins that you commit over and over again even when you say ah, I said sorry last time I did it again anyway so you're still forgiven you're still loved you're worthy because you're loved and let's never lose the wonder and the majesty of the cross of Christ let us live our lives then in surrender to, to this God who would love us this much that he would send his son and butcher him on our behalf so that instead of receiving this, we get forgiveness and life. He was crushed so that we might go free. Now, no doubt some of you will be sitting there with objections in your mind, oh, if only you knew this. Oh, that sounds too good to be true. To which I would respond by asking you, what else would God have to do to convince you? Again, this was my argument to my friend. As we, we had this long conversation about faith and atheism and Christianity, and I, I just I ended in, in a humorous but serious way of grabbing his squash bag as he walked out into the car park and saying, please, Sean, God loves you. Don't walk away from him. Don't look for answers elsewhere. He loves you, and he wants you. You haven't got to live away from him. You haven't got to live in hell apart from him he loves you and he's absorbed your sin in himself his death becomes our life his sorrow becomes our joy and we're the church therefore we can worship him and live in the good of that and now many of us some of us in this room might not be followers of jesus we might feel like oh, i haven't been to church for a long time i don't deserve this this is the good thing about christianity is that well, let, let me read you this and then we'll finish, okay? This is, this is, this is what's sometimes called the, um, the Christian bar of soap. 1 John 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It doesn't say, if we come to church regularly and confess our sins, he'll forgive us. It doesn't say, if we try hard first and then realize we can't and then confess our sins, he'll forgive us because he's faithful and just. It just says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins. At what point do we receive forgiveness? At the moment of confession. At the moment of saying, I'm sorry, I'm a sinner, I've done wrong. Thank you that you died for me. So whether you're a believer or not, this is true for you. In fact, if you're not a believer or follower of Jesus, you can become one today. I'm going to give you opportunity to pray that prayer in a short while. But first of all, we're going to respond by, uh, by listening to a song that the band are going to play. 
using this as a time of reflection and personal response to God for what he's done for us and then we'll see where we go from there.